Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Triumph of the Lamb, with a message entitled, The New Jerusalem. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I grew up on a dairy farm, and to this day, I have warm memories of my childhood, you know, with the land producing a crop and the animals that needed feed and care. It's easier for a family to continue to stay connected on a farm. Everyone contributes to the family business, and one quickly gets the idea that, that work is essential well, as well as getting along. Years later, Kathy, who also comes from a farming background, and I were raising our kids in a large urban center. Church was growing, as was our family, and I saw quite clearly how many different urban pressures were on our kids. Families tend to fracture in the city, and, and people tend to identify with a subculture, and they don't worry about those people who are outside of their subculture. Life tends to be anonymous, and so the value of family, and of community, of accountability, all those things were lessened. And so one summer, we sent one of our daughters to work on her aunt and uncle's chicken farm. And because Sarah's aunt and uncle had hatchlings, they also had plenty of roosters, and Sarah learned to fear those roosters. But over the summer, she learned how to collect eggs and manure out the barn and tend to the multiplicity of daily chores. Sarah was, at that time, a young teenager, and she liked the idea of coming home and, and having money in her pocket. And as I picked her up at the Vancouver International Airport, I told her that I'd always felt a certain level of guilt in not raising my kids on a, on a farm. And her answer was abrupt. She said, well, don't. You know, you can drop the guilt right now. Thanks for not raising us on a farm. Now, I say all of that not to drive a wedge between our urban and our rural listeners. Look, there are advantages in both environments, and I, for my part, am quite happy to now be urban. I like the city. I like the, the pulse of a large city. I love the fact that there are artistic things that are going on. I, I love, you know, outdoor summer urban coffee shops. You know, Vancouver has a wonderful fireworks extravaganza every year and by some of the best fireworks teams around the world. Large cities attract a rich environment of culture, restaurants, coffee shops. They're a melting pot of cultures from around the world. But I have not lost my love for the land. There's something about seeing where our food comes from and something about the annual miracle of seeds planted in God's fertile earth and then sprouting and eventually nurturing a harvest. Farmers seem to intuitively understand how helplessly vulnerable we are and how we are reliant for our abundance on an abundant God. Now, why am I talking about this? Because years ago, I heard someone say, you know, when God created the world, he created a garden. And that meant agriculture. And after sin came, well, that's when sinful human beings created a city. So he's comparing the Garden of Eden with the city of Babel and the spirit of Babylon that has haunted the human family. Now, look, I understand. He had a preference for the farm, and I wanted to tell him that I got it. But a city is only about sin when the world is fallen. There is, however, a holy city coming. Now, the Bible does not tell the story of starting in a garden and then going to a city because of sin, and then finally getting back to the garden. Rather, it tells the story of a garden, which is but the beginning of all that God will accomplish through those who are image bearers of God. 
Now, those of you who are rural and love the farm, the land and the machinery and the small town culture, I mean, you shouldn't groan when you learn about the size of the new Jerusalem. And you've heard me said that we live on the new earth, but, but in the new earth, the barrier between God and man is erased, and then a massive city, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven to earth. So let's start by reading our text. I'll begin by reading Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And when we read that one of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls of God's wrath makes this announcement of the new Jerusalem, well, we should immediately think and go back to Revelation 17, verse 1. That's because it's no coincidence at all that the announcement is made by this same angel. So let's go back to when the same angel made another announcement. And here I'm reading Revelation 17, 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had these seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Now, you should remember that in Revelation 17, the great prostitute, that's a reference to Babylon. That's the city of the Antichrist. But as we've pointed out, because the city of the Antichrist is called Babylon, well, we're led to think about the influence of the city of Babylon throughout human history. Babylon is the city that continually rebels against God. It's the city that persecutes the weak. It's the city that kills the saints of the living God. But Babylon, as we've seen, has her own splendor. Babylon generates commerce. Babylon inspires the arts. Babylon is the place of the next steps in human ingenuity. And Babylon has devised a way in which her most gifted citizens can ply their trade. But all of that is to say that Babylon is also evil, for she inspires sexual immorality. She, she lives on the blood of her victims. And that's the story of the city of man, with all the potential that resides in human cities. And with all the endless possibilities that are there still, Babylon is evil and she is condemned by God. But Jerusalem is not Babylon. I, I know in the past, Jerusalem has looked so very much like Babylon indeed. We need only reflect on Micah's words of prophetic judgment. Here I'm reading Micah 3 verses 9 and 10. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Yeah, that sorry history of Jerusalem is that. Remember, Jesus said of Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. But Isaiah saw a day when the present evil in Jerusalem would be no more. This, said Isaiah, would happen when the Messiah comes. So we listen to Isaiah 4, verses 2 to 4. It says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful, glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And so that's the picture of Jerusalem from the First Testament. 
See, on the one hand, it's the city of the great king. But on the other hand, things have gotten so bad that you can't tell the difference between Babylon and Jerusalem anymore. But the prophets also promised that there were very different destinies for Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon would be forever destroyed and Jerusalem would be forever made new and become the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so the same angel who announced both a vision of Babylon and a vision of Jerusalem, oh, what a contrast between those two cities, now takes John to a very high mountain. Well, it must have been a very high mountain indeed because when we read the size dimensions of the New Jerusalem, well, we must believe that John saw the city from a very dizzying height indeed. Now we come to John's description of the city, and here I'm reading verse 10 again and then into verse 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. You know, verse 11 says that the city has the glory of God. We do know that in the First Testament, there's a Hebrew word, it's Shekinah or Shekinah, which speaks of the glory that would often attend the temple. And you might remember, for instance, when Solomon first dedicated the temple, that a cloud came down and filled the entire place with God's glory so that one could hardly see. But here, it's not merely a symbol of God's presence in the form of a cloud, but rather it's God himself. And so as we consider what follows, which as we will see will be a description of the enormous size of a city, and then the very unique jewels and the gold and the names of the tribes of Israel, along with the names of the 12 apostles. You know, as wonderful as the city sounds, let's not lose sight of this one fact. The glory of God attends this city. For it is the presence of God himself that gives this city the amazing splendor that we find as we continue to read. Truth in Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth in Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth in Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth in Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today. One of the chief differences between amillennialists and premillennialists is their understanding of the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Remember that amillennialists are those who believe that, you know, when the book of Revelation mentions the 1,000-year reign of Christ, that that this is symbolic language. For them, the 1,000-year reign of Christ is a metaphor for how Christ is ruling the world from the time of the resurrection all the way up until the second coming. 
So amillennialists don't see a need to introduce a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ in which Christ comes and physically rules the nations with a rod of iron from Jerusalem on David's throne. See, and for that reason, amillennialists tend to read some sections of the First Testament differently as well. I mean, one of those places is the end of Ezekiel, where the prophet describes a temple that has been built. And we don't have the time to thoroughly examine Ezekiel's temple, but suffice it to say that the dimensions of that temple, well, it makes it quite huge. It seems clear to most Bible students that the temple Ezekiel describes, well, that would require a very different topography than the present city of Jerusalem provides today. And so for that reason, amillennialists have argued that Ezekiel's temple is symbolic. And furthermore, amillennialists argue that Ezekiel's temple and the New Jerusalem in Revelation, well, those two things are actually referring to the same thing. That's to say, amillennialists believe that both Ezekiel's vision of a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and then later John's vision of the New Jerusalem are symbolic visions of the presence of God in the world to come and that these visions shouldn't be taken literally but symbolically, symbolizing that in the world to come, God is dwelling with his people. And furthermore, amillennialists tend to accuse premillennials like myself of being overly literal when we read Revelation. And I know they say what what Ezekiel saw and what John saw are similar enough to be images of the same thing. Well, in truth, there are a great many similarities between what Ezekiel saw and, and what John saw. I mean, for one, in both places, an announcement is made that God's dwelling is now among his people. And in both places, that is, in both Ezekiel and John or in Revelation, they both testify that they were carried in the Spirit to a high mountain location. I mean, both mention the glory of God. Both mention 12 gates and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, one on each gate. Both John and Ezekiel are given a rod to measure the city, which amillennialists claim refers not to a literal reality, but to the reality that that the new world is coming. And both structures, the temple and the city, are said to be a perfect cube, perfectly square, and both places mention the water of life and trees that provide healing. Now, that's a lot of similarities. But if you listen to John's description of the New Jerusalem, it will become readily apparent that there are a number of differences as well. As we will see, Ezekiel envisions a temple, one much smaller than John's vision of the New Jerusalem. Indeed, Ezekiel's temple fits inside of Jerusalem, and John's city of God has no temple at all. It seems far more likely, then, that the temple in Ezekiel is a temple that will be built in the millennium, and the new Jerusalem arrives at the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And in order to examine John's vision of the new Jerusalem, well, let's read him, Revelation 21, 12 to 21. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 
He also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So let's start where the text does. We notice that the city had a great high wall. Now, now that in and of itself sounds strange, doesn't it? I mean, for one, we notice that ancient cities had walls, but we also know that modern cities don't. And the reason for walls around ancient cities was to prevent invading armies from destroying that city. And so from our perspective, well, we might think that, well, it shouldn't be. But we also notice that in the previous section that the cowards and the unbelieving are outside of the city, meaning that the wall prevents them from entering. But again, that sounds strange because in actual fact, the unregenerate are already in the lake of fire. So it's impossible to imagine that they could pose any threat to the new Jerusalem. And the only threat came in the millennium, but now that era is behind us. And on that basis, then, I have to assume that the walls are a symbolic reminder for all eternity that the city was only constructed for the redeemed. The walls will remind God's people that they are there because of the grace of God and because of his grace alone. Were it not for his grace, we would all be outside of the city. And next, we notice that the city has 12 gates, three on each side, and that each gate has its own unique name, named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But because each gate leads through the walls, we notice that each gate has a large foundation stone named after the 12 apostles of Jesus. I think it's not necessary to ask who the 12 are. I mean, we know that Judas was removed and that initially, the early church decided to make Matthias one of the 12. And as you also know, we never read of him again. And then we later read, of course, of the Apostle Paul, one who calls himself untimely born. And so does the one of the foundation stones have the name Matthias or is the name Paul there? Well, of course, our, our passage doesn't say and, and neither is our passage actually interested in that question. But here we notice one of the differences between Ezekiel's temple and the New Jerusalem. You see, Ezekiel's temple has the names of the 12 tribes, but not of the 12 apostles. And I think the reason for that is that Ezekiel's temple serves a very different function. It is, I think, built during the millennium. And as we've already seen during the millennium, there will be a national revival among the Jewish people. And they will, in my view, not only restore the temple, but the temple will become for them their statement of loyalty to Jesus as their Messiah. But in the new heavens and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem, there's a full marriage of both the apostles and the 12 tribes. That is, all God's people, both Jew and Gentile, are one people. But the Gentiles will remember that the gospel came to them through the history of Israel. And Israel is going to remember that it was always God's intention to have but one people made of Jew and Gentile. I mean, Ezekiel never foresaw that. How could he? And next we read that that John is given a measuring rod to measure the city. 
And as we've noticed, this also is what Ezekiel was given. But as John measures the city, it becomes evident that the city that he sees is far more massive than the temple that Ezekiel saw. When John saw the city, it was 12,000 stadia, and that makes about, you know, 1,300 miles or about 2,200 kilometers. Now, I like to put this matter into my own frame of reference, so, so bear with me. You know, basically, we're talking about a city that would be about the distance from where I live, that is Vancouver, all the way to Winnipeg. And since the city is square, it would then go south from Vancouver, equal to about the length to San Diego, and then out somewhere a little past Dallas, and then up again to Winnipeg. That's huge. And then it's equally high, stretching up into space. Are you stunned by the size of this thing? I mean, clearly, Ezekiel never visioned such a thing. Now, please notice that since it is a cube, it would then also rise 2,200 kilometers. And the walls of the city are about 144 cubits thick, making it 200 feet thick, or about 65 meters thick. And after we get past how utterly massive the city is, we next move to the description of the city. The text tells us that the walls are made of jasper, which is a stone kind of reddish-brown, but here we're told it's as clear as crystal. Well, we've never seen anything like that. And then we're told that the city is of pure gold, again, clear as glass. And in this world, gold never appears as clear as glass. So it's obvious to me that the materials that make up this city are of a kind that have never been seen before. This is but the beginning of the description of the most amazing city the earth has ever seen. Thanks so much, John. You know, I'm finding this particularly intriguing. But I have to ask you the question, why is it so important? Or why do you believe that this is actually literal? What, what's important about that? Yeah, I, th- I think this is actually an important point. Uh, because so many of us, when we think about heaven, Ben, we imagine things in very vague, almost mystical fashion. But when we think about how our Bible is given everywhere, I mean, it's never vague and mystical in that sense. I mean, Jesus rose bodily. That's not a metaphor. That's something that actually happened. Christ invites, you know, the disciples to come and examine his hands and feet, and and he eats with them. I mean, there's a physicality and a literalness to the description of the life to come. And and as we continue to read through Revelation 22, we're going to see that further and further explained. So it's important for us to think about eternity in these kind of literalistic terms. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. 
So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay. We're looking forward to seeing you on board.